Hello and welcome to Can Architecture Fix This? A podcast where we explore challenging design questions through stories and conversations with expert guests. I'm your host, Rebecca Schaeberg, coming to you from White Architecture Studio in Oslo, Norway. This season, we're bringing you stories about transformation. How can architecture, landscape architecture, and design in general contribute to positive change? This is, of course, a base intention with every project we take on, but how we deliver on those ambitions is often a surprising journey. Today, we're asking, can architecture fix the brittle city? We've invited William Mann, an architect and principal at Witherford Watson Mann Architects in London, to share a story about working with urbanity in and around London. He uses a metaphor during our talk that I found both powerful and true when working on urban projects. It's the story of the oak and the reed. Many of you listening will be familiar, but for those who aren't, it's worth outlining the basic premise. The story contrasts the behavior of the oak, which trusts in its strength to withstand the storm and is blown over, and the reed that bends with the wind and in doing so survives. We hope you'll enjoy the story. Welcome, William. Hello, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Um, very happy to be speaking with you. I'm especially excited to be speaking with someone who shares my intense love and interest in the city and the history of cities and the myriad of stories that one particular place can hold. So I would love to hear what drew you to wanting to focus in this niche of architecture on the, the city, the regeneration, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your company as well. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Um, my dad uh, was a factory inspector and that meant we moved around the country quite a lot yeah. every few years. And in a way, focusing on, or he was focusing on different industries, and obviously he shared that a bit. And um, so we were in Newcastle for shipbuilding and uh, in uh, Yorkshire for um, wool. Yeah. Textiles and, you know, various other things. And I remember him sort of showing, uh, explaining to me, um, you know, the, I don't know, wool spinning process and that this kind of happened in Leeds, Bradford, Halifax and Huddersfield. I don't remember the precise split, but the idea was that different kind of bits of this kind of conurbation um, mm -hmm. uh, or different cities actually had different roles in the kind of process. So that was kind of an interesting oh, yeah. uh, thing, a kind of ongoing kind of conversation. When mm -hmm. I ended up uh, finally in London, um, uh, and this, you know, London is very much my adoptive, adoptive city, but, um, you know, I'm not, uh, from here so maybe it means that I have this extra um, curiosity about mm. it and that's something that I share with with uh, Stephen and Chris uh, fellow directors of with for what's a man that um, you know one of the first things we did together was just um, explore the city mm -hmm. uh, picked out four parts of the city mm -hmm. that we were curious about mm -hmm. Uh, the West Way, this sort of raised highway was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, the Smithfield Market was another, Spitfields, these areas that were changing. And then yeah. the area that perhaps made the deepest impression on us was the Lee Valley, yeah. um, which is basically London's second river. Um, today, we are going to ask the question, we've talked a little bit already about urbanism and about how cities and, and can you plan cities or are they a living of themselves? So we're gonna ask the question, can architecture fix the brittle city? 
And before we go further, I wonder if you can talk about the brittle city as a term. What does that come from and how that fits under this theme of transformation that we're exploring? Okay, thanks. Yeah, no, um, so the brittle city is a term that um, Richard Sennett, the sociologist, used in an essay um, called The Open City. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose it's a kind of version of Aesop's fable, the oak and the reed, you know, that there's a kind of where the oak is, uh, gets blown down by the wind and the reeds sway. So the idea that the, the, something brittle is strong, but when it's, when force is applied to it, it breaks. And I suppose the opposite would be that something is supple or resilient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's kind of interesting, even in the sense of, you know, that um, the oak is singular, the reeds are multiple, you know, yeah. that... Um, the and I suppose in Senesis it's partly you know it's modernism gets a kicking, but also which it's been getting a kicking for a long time. So the, this concept of overdetermination that he um, kind of brings to it that um, if you design for a single specific use, mm -hmm. um, and obviously that's coming from uh, it's partly uh, architects, but largely that's the idea of, you know it's developers clients um, this idea that you overspecify something and then actually that makes it good for one thing and not good for anything else yeah um so i mean there's um uh, perhaps i could just quote a bit he says the result of overdetermination is what could be called the brittle city modern ur urban environments decay much more quickly than urban fabric inherited from the past as uses change buildings are now destroyed rather than adapted yeah indeed the overspecification of form and function makes the modern urban environment particularly susceptible to decay mm -hmm. the average lifespan of new public housing in britain is now 40 years the average lifespan of new skyscrapers in New York is 35 years. Yeah. I mean, so this idea of almost, on the one hand, this idea of buildings as, you know, and the ideal of architecture as, you know, making things for the centuries. And then this thing that I, the reality that it's like, it's landfill within a couple of decades. Yeah. Um, completely crazy. I mean, obviously then there's a whole investment and kind of capitalist kind of um, uh, angle on that. I mean, I suppose what's interesting, I think Senate's perspective is largely anarchist. Yeah, I agree. With all the kind of possibilities and perhaps limitations of that. It's interesting, actually, Ebenezer Howard, who kind of cooked up the whole Garden City thing, yeah. um, uh, was also was um, an anarchist who worked in um, advertising. Um, mm -hmm. And um, the Garden Cities is moderately interesting, but actually what it was, that was a project to change the economic dynamics of the city. Um, I think then it's a, it's a good time that we zoom out and just discuss the two primary schools of thought on urban mm. development, let's say. Maybe not mm, city planning, but urban development. Yeah. Um, so the one is the tabula rasa, as you say, yeah. you just take a big area, several blocks worth, clean it out and start all over. The other is um, readaptive approach where you go in and you mm. see what can be reused, repurpose it, add in things, change them. It's a, it's a bit of a, a top-down versus bottom-up. Um, and you wrote an article, like we said in the introduction, A Latecomer Imagines the City. And I get the impression both from that and from your work and from this discussion that um, you could make the argument that small architectural transformation projects can be better catalyzers for urban regeneration around it. So I wonder if we can just um, discuss those two primary schools mm -hmm. of yeah. urban development and, and your stance. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, the 
you know, very much the my essay latecomer was very much a polemic against sort of tabula rasa, mm -hmm. and it was, um, I guess, I just sort of held up the promises that had accompanied the sales brochures. Yeah, to, I've actually got a, an unhealthy interest in you know this whole sort of sales literature around development because um, it's kind of interesting the 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 promises that are made or the implied promises of you know. Mm -hmm. And they're these happy couples wandering through a landscape, cars whiz, whiz past, um, yeah. you know, there's lots of green and so it's kind of quasi-natural. Um, and then you look at it and then there's this sort of dirty river, urban wasteland, yeah, there's kind yeah. of particles in the air from yeah. the industry. And, um, and we've talked about this before in a separate conversation yeah. about the problem of imagery. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's <laughs> right. and, it's, and it's the banality of the imagery that's kind yeah. of, uh, troubling. Mm. Um, so I suppose, you know, what I tried to do with that essay was kind of, um, it probably, um, beyond arguing one case against another, and, you know, obviously there's one, I'm inve more invested in, you know, one side of that argument, I suppose it probably has sort of two other kind of subliminal messages. One is, um, in terms of the political imagination, I mean, politicians have to kind of develop an adult urban imagination because a childish urban imagination where stuff is green people are happy and you know yeah, yeah. traffic problems you know don't exist yeah um is not doesn't help anyone actually it's kind of counterproductive yeah but um the other side of it i guess is um uh, uh a call for architects professionals to take responsibility for our imaginations and mm. not going to feed this beast with, you know, these naive uh, fantasies. And I guess it's what the Marxists would call kind of false con consciousness, where mm. you think you're being creative and imagining this sort of um, positive future. And actually you are, you're feeding the beast, you know, yeah. which is just sort of destroying, <laughs> evicting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh wherever you stand uh on that and the process is kind of politically um if you're going to make these promise promises you at the very least have the duty to examine how many of them you're able to realize and mm. i guess it's the sort of thing it's just this idea of how much surgery before you kill the patient <laughs> you know um yeah how you were apply and i think this goes back so it goes back to modernism but it goes back beyond it to almost enlightenment kind of ideas of governance and uh the city and it's just sort of how do you apply rational thinking to something that's really complex yeah without then just sort of setting off this whole chain of unintended consequences how is change accommodated most effectively within the city mm -hmm. and i guess you know maybe you look at it as being like the cells of a body or the cells and the organs it's got so multiple scales and it's you know my knowledge of biology is incredibly sketchy because i stopped age <laughs> uh, 15 but i understand that our cells keep dying and being replaced and yeah, um, yeah. that's kind of what keeps us going and um that's yeah. what architects are involved in is you yeah. know this thing of cell replacement uh yeah. and renewal yeah. and repair and then it feels to me almost like we've just got used to the idea of the industrial revolution and actually now it's over and um, <laughs> what a different problem. Um, and it's kind of interesting if you look at um, the factory, 
the factories were, was originally an idea almost of a kind of standalone colony. I mean, was it yeah. um, Arkwright and the first mills in, um, uh, is it Cromford? Um, you know, it's a standalone community with just like totally focused on production and it's yeah. organized, social organization, organization of work along kind of production line principles. Mm. And why didn't that, um, you know, how, isn't it interesting that actually if industry and factories became integrated in the city? Yeah, yeah. And actually in this sort of exchange, there's a very beautiful uh, essay by Peter Hall in his, it was a book, Cities and Civilizations, about Manchester, which mm -hmm. is about this sort of how factories got integrated in the city mm -hmm. rather than surviving as a standalone offshoot. So I guess there's always these... Um, economic systems, social, I mean, I suppose the so social systems, I mean, they're much more supple um, and, you know, have these kind of deeper roots. But certainly economic systems, I think, are always, there's always this sort of sense of that they'd like to straighten up the crooked timber of the city. But um, mm -hmm. uh, what's, I think, you observe in any city that is still... Um, going rather than, you know, do you know um, Fordlandia in um, Brazil? The, you know, no. The Ford, the Ford um, this sort of ruins of the, the factory city built by um, Thomas Ford, you know. Yeah. Um, you've got all these company towns and things like that, and then the, the factory closes and you've got no settlement. So yeah, yeah. the principle of it, that's what I mean about complex interdependencies, is just mm -hmm. that... Um, you know, the city, there comes a point where, I don't know, someone does services for someone else, who manufactures something for someone else. Mm -hmm. And we've just built this um, uh, small business centre up the road in um, Hoxton. It's 98 units. And what's interesting is, and then we've got this big open um, uh, kind of light court in the middle, very kind of narrow and tight. But mm -hmm. um, uh, what's interesting is in uh, a small business center and you know it's like something like half the jobs in london are small businesses yeah actually you know we focus on you know the stock exchange big companies it's actually you know london is no longer um thousand people working in a um in a factory it's now granular yeah um and in a small business center um you know people might do 30 percent of their turnover with another with other firms in the um, in the vicinity, uh, yeah. In the vicinity, because yeah. uh, it's like you need a website done. You, okay, you know, it's mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you need this. You know, you need to arrange an event. Okay, you know, yeah. we'll do that. So the sense of it, this exchange of services, and I guess the point at which it becomes a a city is the point at which this thing, this momentum becomes self-sustaining. It becomes mm -hmm. a kind of ecology. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, it becomes a uh, ecology, an economic ecology. At the same time, mm -hmm. obviously, it also then has to function as a metabolism of you know materials in and yeah 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 uh, waste out so the the this kind of sense of yeah what distinguishes a system from a city mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. kind of i guess the key kind of consideration when you think about how do you accommodate change most effectively making a plan that um uh, you think is going to last, last for a long time. That's also brittle. Yeah. I mean, it's like Mike Tyson says, said, um, everyone has a plan until they get uh, punched in the mouth, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's like, what do you do? And what, by which you meant, what do you, you know, you have a game plan. You say, I'm going to do this to beat Mike Tyson. But uh, mm. 
uh, what do you do when that goes wrong? And yeah, you know, I guess you need a plan B and a plan C and a yeah, yeah. Uh, so the idea of strategy and projects then is that um, you've got these kind of reserves and you've got these priorities and you think let's do this and then just something kind of totally blocks it and mm-hmm. then like, well look, okay you shift your emphasis somewhere else it feels like um i mean i think i suppose it's institutionally demanding to make the city that way and it mm. requires really real kind of collaboration between designers and uh kind of city officials um mm-hmm. but it feels like it's the appropriate way of kind of nurturing the city rather than just you know planning is maybe easier but Mm. I think planning is brittle. Um, the the last thing that I want to bring up then before we close out is um, is about time. Yeah. And in your article again, you wrote in reference to the Elephant and Castle area in London, but I think we can apply this elsewhere. Is that no matter how much political or popular momentum an urban project has behind it, it will almost surely falter due to the constraints of time. And it reminds me also of something you said in a lecture that I w- I watched. Um, the lecture was entitled Untimely Buildings. And you said that buildings are almost always too early or too late for their users. So I, I think, you know, when we're talking about master planning, we're talking about time, we're talking about politics. Um, I can see that time and architecture are, are often at odds. What can we say uh, about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose certainly the idea of making something durable. Uh, and this is wonderful, noble ideal that, you know, you'll, that there's a, problem and you'll build a building that will address that problem and it's like yeah it doesn't it's not that simple because in the time it takes to <laughs> design and build the building the mm-hmm. problem's changed and you know life has moved on and mm-hmm. uh the mark the um clerk of works um of a client of ours uh you have a, who had uh, quite a large estate um told me this sort of um phrase they have um in their um, estates and maintenance department, where they say, if it's permanent, it's temporary. Yeah. And if it's temporary, it's permanent. <laughs> that, you know, if you just do something improvised as a sort of short-term fix, it'll endure forever. <laughs> forever. You know? And then uh, if you plan it to be forever, it ends mm. up being overtaken by events and then it cha- you're changing it again in a couple yep. of years. Yeah. And that kind of, for me, it's kind of fantastic to meet someone of, a totally different kind of background and professional experience or whatever and it's like yep yeah we're totally on the same wavelength there because you know it's like there's prefabricated buildings from the first from sorry the end of the second world war mm-hmm. um that are still in use and you know they were mm-hmm. meant to be temporary and mm-hmm. uh and then that um talk that you referred to i was talking about um theaters and how in order to build the national theater um they built a temporary theater mm-hmm. uh, in order to build the audience and to build the acting company because mm-hmm. the new one had three stages and they were playing on uh, some house with one stage. So they built this temporary theatre that was meant to last for five years and it lasted for kind of 30 and then mm-hmm. now they've just rebuilt it and it's, you know, it's founded a company. So I guess the thing that interests me there is that there is this beautiful exchange of energy between kind of people and things. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's what makes our job interesting, but the, yeah. it's not a linear one, no. it's not a predictable one. And we've got to be kind of smart and nimble about that. Yeah. And what's interesting then is, you know, if you then take that to the urban scale, so I mean, I think that's bread that is and ought to be sort of bread and butter for, um, you know, uh, architectural practice that you're, 
you're always working with this like mismatch between the found situation and where you'd like to be, but you don't try to look too far ahead. And mm-hmm. and I suppose what you try and do is make something that's that's open ended and adaptable and not so totally neutral, but that you know has a a capacity for the future. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what's interesting then the urban um, scale is so there was a famous plan for London, uh, the Abercrombie plan in 1943 and then followed up in 1944, which tried to turn London into a garden city <laughs> with a follower of uh, Ebenezer Howard. And very early in our um, practice, we uh, went to a bit of East London Poplar um, and found this bit of open space they were building housing on. Mm-hmm. We looked into it and uh, this had been someone during the Second World War had sort of done this very really careful map of beautiful painted map of London sort of saying there should be a park here there should be a park here and love this is more or less what happened you know it was implemented yeah uh, and then you reach sort of the early 2000s and there's you know the dynamics have changed the politics have changed the economics have changed the people were talking about density rather than de-densifying and all these other things mm-hmm. but above all the institutional memory has gone so this park that people had spent probably decades and you know millions of pounds assembling mm-hmm. then then start building on again so you know a plan is only as long is only good for as long as the institutional memory yeah. is there i mean the houseman started with the plan des artistes of, the, of 1793 mm-hmm. you know where the artists an artist commission basically said look paris is a mess it's yeah. know, hasn't been updated since the middle ages you've got to do something about it and let's cut some big straight streets so that's mm-hmm. 1793 it didn't happen until the 1850s right um and then and it carried on happening till the 1920s so that's something that was obviously in the culture and there was a mm-hmm. consensus and i guess you know edinburgh newtown um, started off um, just after the Jacobite uprising in 1745. Apparently the plan um, was uh, originally uh, in the form of a Union Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually you can see that, so it's a unionist project. Um, and you can see that memory in the fact that it was originally St George's Square and St Andrew's Square, so the patron saint of England and Scotland, had mm-hmm. either end of this kind of plan. And this was then delivered by a kind of oligarchy. Um, but you know, and then it sort of expanded. And then actually the interesting thing in Edinburgh is the bridges. Mm-hmm. It's almost like inhabited bridges, the bridge streets. Um, uh, um, so that was a kind of process that was um, carried on till 1830, mm-hmm. when the city went bankrupt and there was democratic reform. So it's like, to make a dent in the city, you need to keep a project going for like... Yeah you know um quite a few decades yes. that needs and that needs so it almost needs to have its roots in the culture yeah uh have that buy-in have yeah. that, the delivery capability and then have that institutional memory because mm-hmm. otherwise it's you know it's a piece of paper that uh, yeah, yeah. ends up on someone's shelf or a yeah uh you know a digital file that ends up in some sort of memory bank yeah yeah and it needs to be somehow owned by more than just the planner or the the developing authority it needs to be owned by the communities i mean there has to be kind of like you say it has to be built into a culture that even after political shifts happen this project means so much for a community that it would be political death to stop it so you have to keep going for it so you have to kind of build it into 
more stakeholders, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose the interesting thing there is that um, uh, the, maybe in that sense, um, those of us who are working at the strategic scale mm-hmm. have to, you know, have an interesting, occupy an interesting niche within the profession that um, uh, something the Belgian colleague called maîtrise partielle, partial mastery, you know, yeah. um, that you can, can control some of the levers, but other people are yeah, yeah. controlling other levers and that yeah. you learn to work with us. In a way, I suppose, the perhaps the whole construction of the architectural profession is this idea of kind of control and um, mm. kind of mastery, and maybe that's then where the word master plan comes from or whatever. And I guess this sort of sense that you can that you're part of a team game mm-hmm. um, and that you're not bigger than the team and that yeah. somehow, and you can sort of introduce one or two clever ideas, but um, yeah. if you, you know, they have to resonate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so if you have to explain the entirety of it, then it's bound to collapse. Exactly. If, you know, if it comes out of, um, if it, echoes with people's experience then you've got half a chance Mm. well and as you said also uh in the reservoir project when the four actors came together they they created a vision that was better than the one that each one could have created alone i think that's very powerful and i also would would... yeah and i suppose that's then part of the so yeah i guess city building has to be coalition building yeah exactly exactly um and you know it's probably easy i mean it's easier if it's you've got a single all-powerful um, yeah. Plant with a big stick and a large wallet, but yeah. actually that doesn't, you know, that never delivers a city. No, exactly, it doesn't. Delivers a sort of a military encampment or <laughs> a uh, company town. Oh yeah, or or something that the developer builds, and as we started by saying, it, it, thirty years later, it's taken down and done again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not a city either. Yeah. But, but I, I also want to say one last thing about what you said about temporary and permanent, and you build something mm-hmm. temporary, it's permanent. I think that's very freeing to to hear and to feel and to have the confidence to do that because that means we shouldn't be afraid to start with something even if it's not the right thing you know in in um working in a big urban development if you you know get a little coalition together and you just start by making something it it can be temporary and that's fine and maybe that actually was the right thing and Mm. it becomes permanent or it just keeps getting tweaked and tweaked and tweaked until it is the right thing for the people who are living there absolutely though the sense that um the actually the culture is part of the project yeah yeah and, and shifting the culture is part of the project and maybe that yeah. first shift in that first shift of culture is building trust mm-hmm. building alliances mm-hmm. um and anything that you anything that does that is is good for the uh longer term process mm. i mean and i suppose um there's a way of looking at you know a city as you know like the cells of a body and um I guess finding the right scale of intervention is yeah. um, really key. Mm-hmm. And even the sense that maybe these scales are linked and that, yeah. you know, you can perhaps start to kind of um, uh, start to demonstrate possibilities at a small scale and then you build momentum uh, with that. Equally, that you know, in a way that I guess you should be always um, uh, trying to, Affect, you know, you affect, try and affect change to the smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And it's only when it, when the cell structure or the 
you know the um, you know element you're working on um, can't accommodate that change that you then need something a bit more surgical and even mm -hmm. then it's you know you know it's keyhole surgery rather than uh, um, open heart <laughs> exactly open heart or amputation I mean yeah. the Scottish kind of geographer and urbanist Patrick Geddes who uh, very much borrowing the kind of um, uh, Edwardian kind of uh, medical uh, metaphor of conservative, talk about conservative surgery. Mm -hmm. The idea of this was that you do as little as possible mm -hmm. to maximize the chances of recovery. So I think it's, I don't know, is it almost like the medical precautionary principle? It's like mm -hmm. um, you should always be trying to affect your change at the smallest scale. And that's only when you can demonstrate that you can't achieve it at that small scale. And, you know, and with maximum retention, mm -hmm. you know, allowing for the architectural skill of adaptation or whatever, mm -hmm. it's only then that you, that you maybe demonstrate, we need to do this. We need a major project. We need, I mean, yeah. cities that always require major projects. Some of these involve destruction. Some of them involve large bits of construction, but mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess it's almost just about, you know, that kind of sense of demonstration. And the thing that makes me, me uneasy is then when, you know, the lazy, arguments that you know get put forward just just to make everyone's lives easier yeah um and that doesn't deliver the city no it's not easy cities are not easy no yeah <laughs> um then the way uh we're ending today is how we're ending all the interviews the name of the podcast is can architecture fix this today we've been talking about the brittle city about master planning and the role that architecture can or should play in urban transformation so do you think that architecture can fix the brittle city? And if it's too narrow to focus on architecture, how might you reframe it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, I guess I'd say we, you know, we make the city by projects. Yeah. Uh, not by plans. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose the strat you might think of a strategy as a bundle of projects. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking of, you know, Aesop and the reeds rather than the oak, you know, the bundle is kind of strong and the bundles may be stretched over time, but um, uh, it has this kind of resilience. So I suppose this idea of the multiple, um, coordinated multiple works rather mm -hmm. than singular kind of... Um, this is uh, it. <laughs> ...position, yeah, yeah, feels like it's something that's uh, an appropriate response to, you know, these challenges of time. Of yeah. things that you know you can't do it all at once it's yeah. i think uh, brian eno um uh says something like you know make many small mistakes fast <laughs> and it, it's this sense of yeah just that that's the the way to handle these sort of complex uh situations there's a way of building as an architect that um is already resilient that mm -hmm. you um build with spare capacity you build with ceiling heights that uh, allow for change and allow mm -hmm. for daylight and ventilation. The design with structural capacity to add another floor or right. with circulation capacity that allows things to operate in several modes that you mm -hmm. don't build on all the site so that someone can come along later and add to it. So, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense, the project, if you, there's a way of designing the cell mm -hmm. that allows for change as well as, you know, without, um, uh, kind of moving above that and I suppose um I mean maybe I think it was Louis Kahn who said there's no such thing as architecture there's only the work of architecture hmm. um I'd probably go even far and say 
just no such thing as architecture. It's like there's architects and there's buildings <laughs> and there's cities. Yes. And it's, listen, it's convenient uh, shorthand for a number of things. But uh, as soon as it starts getting kind of metaphysical, it's, it's a problem. And maybe there is a problem in conceiving of, you know, how we think of it. Uh, do we think of architecture differently than we think of a building? Is it this idea of, you know, completeness and closeness that, you know, mm. we have to master? Mm. Uh, so I guess the thing that intrigues me then there is that, you know, the possibility that um, this sort of adaptive uh, reuse, transformation, this sort of work at the scale of the, the cell, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is also kind of gives a pointer to... Um, you know, the work at the scale of the body, mm. um, you know, that, uh, and that actually maybe the problem is, you know, thinking of the, the building as a system, thinking of certainly of the, or as a closed uh, system, I don't think anyone kind of has the, the chance, you know, good luck trying to deliver the city as a closed system, but um, I guess maybe you might say that's a little bit what these, you know, the plans do, mm -hmm. plans think of it as something sort of controllable and uh, deliverable so I think the intriguing thing is you and maybe it's even a little bit like the um you know the Eames power of powers of 10 that mm -hmm. um let's just sort of zoom out mm -hmm. from this sort of metaphysical sort of construct of architecture and look mm -hmm. at this sort of all these rooms all these buildings all these mm -hmm. kind of networks um and the networks are always being updated and replaced and you know whether it's yeah, yeah. You know, it's fiber optic or um, railways or whatever. That these networks are always incomplete. Mm -hmm. um, so you scale the zoom out, and you look at something that's sort of open-ended and incomplete. Mm -hmm. Zoom in, and you see, um, you know, <laughs> furniture being moved, yeah, yeah, yeah. being re reconfigured. You know, what is it? Yeah. Um, on the one hand, this atomization of the smaller and smaller households. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I don't know, you know, this sort of counterforce towards the collective and that the building stock can never quite keep keep up with that. You can't build that. So mm -hmm. it's sort of reconfiguration. And that's then where just this sort of small scale evolution of the uh, the building, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, comes in. And so, and maybe this point, you know, this, this sort of thing that we call architecture kind of uh, evaporates and mm -hmm. we just have this sort of set of, you know, an open process at mm. the small scale, an open process at the large scale, but just some kind of senses to um, some sense and some agreement and some consensus as to how they relate, mm. and that you know time is time and consensus is kind of part of the or you know time and a shared imagination are maybe the mm. keys to you know working with this slow heavy stuff. Yeah. Of buildings to accommodate this sort of fleshy mortal stuff that um, you know we all are. Yeah, we can uh, take the pressure off and, and say it's never really finished, so we don't have to finish it. <laughs> we can just start. Well, or even to say we have to not finish it. Yeah, you know, even that. I mean, Bill Howell, the architect of uh, the Young Vic, sort of said something like, "Yeah." not building for posterity kind of gave a kind of freedom and it's for yeah. me it's by far their best building you know so absolutely you're right that this sort of sense of um the sense of control the sense of completion is kind of maybe a problem mm -hmm. um and so i mean i'm absolutely you know 
uh, focused on, you know, we can do our jobs really well by by actually, and we can probably do our jobs really better by acknowledging our limitations, acknowledging mm-hmm. where other people have agency and need to have agency, mm-hmm. and you know that we're kind of part of that um, reconfiguration. So I think that it's really interesting how we can, you know. Um, maybe demystify some of you know what we do uh, yeah. find a vocabulary that kind of has a kind of common resonance because mm-hmm. otherwise you know if you think it is some all some sort of abstruse kind of theory that you're applying to the world you'd, you'd better wait a couple of millennia before anyone <laughs> maybe even agrees with you and in the meantime you've got to work with the thought patterns that are there and yeah but then, you know, this thing of working with uh, what's already there. I mean, it's interesting if I start, you know, if I'm, if, I mean, it's interesting if you draw a, um, a plan or you draw even a, I try and draw in perspective a lot and um, just to sort of start to imagine what it's like, is, you know, when you've got 20 kilometers, um, how do you, you lose a sense of how big anything is very quickly. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, is as soon as you draw something that already exists, you have an anchor in it, you have an emotional connection, you have a, a sense of scale. So I would, um, I think, you know, maybe the, um, you know, one takeaway from all this reflection for me is it's just more fun mm. when you accept the constraints of the existing, the constraints of time, you know, and that this kind of world of imaginary freedoms is not fun. It's not interesting. <laughs> and, you know, other it's also dangerous. <laughs> William Mann, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if people want to find more information about your projects or your company, where could they go? Oh, well, website, um, mm-hmm. yeah. www.wwmarchitects.co.uk. Very good. Very good. Thanks again. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's the story this week. Thank you all for listening. If you would like to learn more about William Mann and his company, Witherford Watson Mann Architects, you can find information online at www.wwmarchitects.co.uk. Can Architecture Fix This is produced by Ingjotsen van Klevan and White Architecture in Oslo. Sophia Benson is our managing director. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you have a minute, please give us a rating or even better, share us with a friend. You can find us on Instagram under the handle White Architecture Oslo, or visit our website at www.whitearchitecture.com. Join us next time when we speak with Florian Korsche, a structural engineer in Oslo, for a discussion about how architecture can fix outdated buildings. I'm Rebecca Schaeberg, and this was Can Architecture Fix This? from White Architecture.